Well, if I don't get to preach this morning, uh, I get to do the next best thing, which means I get to introduce someone that I care about, someone that I am like-minded with, someone who is a co-laborer with me in the Great Commission. He's been here uh, one other time, so if you don't know him, let me remind you, Seth Miller and I go back uh, several years ago to Spokane. I was a pastor on staff, and he uh, showed up to the church uh, fresh from Lewiston, Idaho. So that makes us fellow Northwesterners, so we have a bond, we get each other. Uh, we have mountains, so when we go outside, we see mountains in the Northwest. I don't know if you know what that's like, but it's, it's, it's an exhilarating experience. But we have known each other for years. He uh, served in the ministry over which I was a pastor. He was one of the men that I got to be in his life and be one of the many voices in his life training him for pastoral ministry. He is uh, here in Dallas going to Reform Theological Seminary, training for ministry, learning how to handle God's word with care and accuracy. And this morning, he is our escort. He is our usher who will exegetically escort us to the throne room of heaven. So Seth, please come and bring us the word. Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you again. Uh, this is the second time, as Jared mentioned. Um, it's a real joy to come and preach for a former pastor of mine who meant so much to me and uh, impacted me greatly for the Lord. And so let's begin our time again in prayer as we enter into God's word. Father, we thank you for your word that it speaks clearly and boldly to our souls, that it calls us out where we are in sin and it leads us to righteousness. Lord, we thank you most of all that you have revealed your Son, the way of salvation, the Christ who came into the world to redeem sinners, Lord, and you have redeemed us. You have given us your Holy Spirit. And so we pray for the Spirit to illuminate our minds, to convict us of the truth, and to show us the way into godliness. And so we pray that you would be here with us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So far in Titus, um, there has been a directive from Paul to Titus on what exactly a healthy church looks like. Of course, that starts with appointing sound leaders who can teach sound doctrine that results in sound living. And we are currently in the second uh, the, the sound living portion of Paul's letter. Paul has just instructed Titus on how a healthy church is to function between the older and the younger in chapter 2. The husband and wife, the slave and master. His point is that a healthy church will have well-ordered relationships that adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And in our text today, he directs our attention to how a healthy church relates to society. For Paul, it was of great importance for the churches in Crete to know how to conduct themselves in a pagan society. As you know, the island of Crete was not Victorian England, where morality flowed and there was order and peace, but it was actually an island of treachery. It was immoral, unruly, wild, and a wicked place. So much so that the ancient historian Polybius once commented on the nature of Crete that greed and vice were so native to the soil in Crete that they are the only people in the world among whom no stigma attaches to any sort of gain, no matter how immoral it is. And he also went on to say, You could find no habits prevailing in private life more steeped in treachery than those in Crete. 
and no public policy more inequitable. Crete was a wicked, immoral, and rebellious place, and yet the gospel had come in. The gospel was preached by the early church, and souls were saved. And so the church was learning how to conduct themselves in this society. And though our culture does not have quite the same reputation that Crete has, we are certainly living in a progressively godless society. We see it everywhere. We saw it last night. We see it in politics. The anti-Christian agenda is live and well, and people are pushing harder and harder for an anything-goes morality when it comes to sexuality, abortion, gender assignment surgeries. On TV, you see it. It's almost impossible to watch a show without being exposed to some kind of lust that our culture has. In many schools and public universities, secular progressivism is the only creed that is allowed and taught. And Christians who go there will inevitably have their faith challenged and confronted. Even in the world of sports, just a few weeks ago, it was revealed that the soccer, the woman soccer player, Jaylene Hinkle, who was on the national team, was actually kicked off because of her Christian views of sexuality. I mean, there are many more examples of how our society is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity and more and more pagan every day. And so, of course, what we are concerned with is how do we, as a church, as Christians, conduct ourselves in a pagan society? How should we live in this society? Are we to push back and fight, using politi politics to change the tide of the culture? Are we, are we to keep up with the culture? Are we just to conform and fit in? Or are we even to isolate ourselves from the culture so that we do not be corrupted like the rest of the people in our society? Well, Paul's instruction to Titus on how the churches in Crete were to conduct themselves in a far more pagan society may actually surprise us. Paul does not tell them to engage in a long culture war, lobbying for Christian values and government, nor does he tell them to flee to a place that is more welcoming to Christianity. Rather, his exhortations are far more mundane and ordinary. Yet it is in their ordinariness that makes them radical and a profound testimony to Jesus Christ in the world. In fact, Paul is really just interested in this one thing, that Christians be who they are and not what they once were. Meaning that Christians in Crete were to live according to the gospel, which he had taught them to renounce their former way of life and to put on the virtues of the new life in Christ. And so he lists out these seven virtues of the new life in Christ for engaging society and the seven vices from the old life in sin of how we once lived in society but are no longer to live in that way. These will occupy the focus of our study this morning. And before we enter into the text, we need to make two observations. The first is that Paul's instructions come to us as a list. He simply lists out in bullet point fashion the characteristics of how a healthy church engages society. And on the flip side, he lists out the characteristics that describe our former life in sin. 
And Paul actually does this quite a bit in his letter to Titus. As you remember, the qualifications for elders come in a 14-point bullet point form. So you see that in chapter 1. And then even in chapter 2, he lists out all the characteristics of healthy relationships within the church. It's as almost if Paul didn't have the time to you know, adequately expound all of these virtues and characteristics and he kind of had to rush them out to get them to create quickly. I mean, it's just there's point after point after point. And so the temptation when reading these lists is to kind of turn them into a sort of moralism. To look at our passage today and think, well, I just need to be better at these seven qualities and then I'll know I'm a good Christian. Or even to look at the vices in verse 3 and to think, well, I do not do those things, so you know, I must be fine. And it fills us up with pride. Now, that's not at all what Paul is intending for us here. Rather, these are gospel exhortations. These are gospel duties that flow out of the grace of God. It is only through our union with Jesus Christ and the Spirit's power that we are able to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present evil age. You see, Paul doesn't go up to random strangers on the streets of Crete and grab them by the shoulders and yell at them to just be these seven qualities. Rather, these characteristics come after his proclamation that Christ Jesus has come into the world to redeem sinners, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify a people for his own possession, who are then zealous for good works. The New Testament knows nothing of the moralistic, pull yourselves up by the bootstraps, kind of you know, self-improvement model that our culture talks about so frequently. Rather, the New Testament model of growth in godliness is that it only comes through the transformation of regeneration, union with Christ, the indwelling spirit that empowers us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And so we recognize that we have been called out from darkness, united to the perfections and holiness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are then urged to live consistently with the, the sound doctrine of the gospel. You see, the gospel comes first. And Paul is putting these lists all in a gospel context. You see it at the end of chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then towards the end of our passage today, he, he enters back into how we were saved and redeemed by the goodness and kindness of our Lord. And so Paul instructs us to live consistently with who we are called to be in the gospel. And so he gives us these seven virtues and seven vices, listing out one by one the characteristics of sound and faithful living in a pagan society. The second observation that I'd like to draw your attention to is the manner in which Paul's teaching comes to Titus. Look at the beginning of verse 1. Remind them to be. Notice those words, remind them. This instruction comes by way of a reminder. What Paul is saying to Titus is nothing new, but was something common to his teaching previously. And we'll see later on how often Paul and other New Testament writers frequently write about submission to government and authorities. This was common to their instruction. This was nothing fancy. This was nothing new. 
So the whole form of our instruction today is a reminder. Now, why would they need a reminder? Well, for one, there were false teachers who had crept into the church and were insubordinate, likely leading the congregation away from the authority of Paul and the apostolic witness. And the church had likely abandoned many of the fundamentals of sound doctrine and sound living and were looking for that which was novel, for the next new thing. Satan loves to tempt and lead away sheep by causing them to chase after the next best thing. Rather than committing themselves to the plain, simple, and authoritative teaching of Paul, the churches in Crete were following after lies that seemed more spiritual, that seemed more exciting and meaningful. And I think it's common to our sinful nature to hate the ordinary, to hate the simple, and to love novelty. And so we need reminders. I worked at a golf course uh, back in high school, and I was, you know, worked in the pro shop, and you know, frequently had interactions with the pro. And um, you know, other golfers would come in every once in a while, and there was kind of a running joke about this this particular pro who was supposed to give all these, you know, golf lessons. And they said the only thing this guy can teach you is how to grip the golf club. And nobody would take lessons from him because, you know, like who wants just to be told how to grip the golf club? They want that secret, you know advice that's going to help them drop 10 strokes off their handicap. And, you know, so nobody took lessons with the guy. Um, and the funny thing is, when you go down to the driving range, what was the number one thing that people failed to do in their golf swing? They didn't know how to grip the golf club. And so all of these golfers were looking for the next new secret bit of advice that could help them along in their golf game when it's the fundamentals, it's the, it's the ordinary, you know, basics of golf that they needed to grasp. And sin always causes us to be discontent with what God has given and seek after something that looks new and better. Therefore, it was Titus' responsibility to remind the people. And that's really what preaching is. The great Puritan Thomas Manton said, There is a use of ministry to keep doctrine still afoot in the church and to keep us in remembrance. Ministers are the Lord's remembrancers. It is a great part of their office to remind the people of their duty. Ministers are remembrancers. So you can think of Jared as your remembrancers. He's supposed to call you to account, to remind you of your duties, to remind you of sound doctrine. He brings the word of God to you week in and week out as a reminder of who God is, who you are, and what you're called to be. So you shouldn't expect from Jared to bring any new novel idea to you, but just the the, the plain, the simple, and authoritative teaching of God's Word. So as we look at each of these virtues, we have to understand that these virtues of living in a pagan society are actually quite ordinary and simple. But they're easily forgotten and neglected. And so we, like the Cretans, need to be consistently reminded of how we are to live out the new life in Christ. So look again at verse 1. The first three virtues that Paul instructs Titus to remind the people of is to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work. We will look at them together as they relate to our duties as Christian citizens being put under a government. 
So he starts by saying, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. In the first place, Paul is talking about the disposition that Christians ought to have in relation to their governing authority. And that disposition is to be that of submission, to place oneself under the authority, jurisdiction, and laws of the government. Now, this was actually quite a countercultural command in Crete. They were no- notorious for their upheavals, for rebelling against the Roman government. They hated that the Romans had occupied their island. And so they often would rebel and cause civil unrest. And so Paul's command is quite con- uh, countercultural. Their conduct as Christians in obeying laws, paying taxes, not trying to overthrow the government, and living a quiet and peaceful life would have made quite the statement in the Cretan context. They would have shown that they were different from the pagan society. As we know, Paul frequently references this command to be subject to the governing authorities in his letters. In Romans chapter 13, he gives three reasons why every Christian should submit to ruling authorities, no matter how pagan and anti-Christian they are. And the first, uh, the first reason he gives is that all ruling authorities have been put in place by God. That doesn't mean that they're infallible or just in every decision that they make, but that God has sovereignly appointed and put them in the position of power and authority. And so we submit to them because we are in submission to God. And so disobeying them would be dis- disobedience to God. It's quite simple, really. And the second reason he gives is that ruling authorities are given by God for our good to punish evil. It is good that God has given the authority to governments to punish wrongdoers. It actually keeps things peaceable and in order. We wouldn't want to be in a society where there were no rules and where anarchy you know, prevailed. It would be an intolerable place to live. But the governing authorities that God has put in place actually restrain evil, and so they are for our good. Third, and finally, we submit to ruling authorities, ruling authorities and pay our taxes for the sake of conscience. It's the third reason Paul gives. Our conscience is a wonderful gift from God and it guides us into making good and right decisions. And Paul tells us that our conscience is more at peace when we are obedient, respectful, and submissive to ruling authorities. I mean, you guys know how this goes and you're driving down the road and you're speeding, 10 over the speed limit, and you're looking at every corner to see if there's a cop around and your conscience is pricked and you, you, know, you feel that bit of shame and you don't want to get caught. That's how it is when we disobey. And so Paul says it's actually a better thing to be consistent with your conscience, to live in obedience and be subject to the ruling authorities, not to rebel. And so those are the three primary reasons Paul gives to submit to the government in Romans chapter 13. But I think as you read through the New Testament, there is another powerful reason that emerges, and it is this. Our kingdom is not of this world. We are citizens of a heavenly country, and our ruler is Jesus Christ, who has been given all authority and power on earth and in the heavenly places. It is in the gospel that trains us 
to be submissive to worldly authorities because we know that our kingdom is not of this world. It's coming when Christ returns. This is what Paul wrote in chapter 2, verse 13 of Titus. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's nothing that shows our belief in this to be more real than the humble, patient, praying, and peaceful waiting for the blessed hope. So we're not going to usher in the kingdom through the upheavals of government or winning culture wars or instituting a Christian state. That's not how the kingdom of God comes. No, the kingdom of God will come when Christ returns. And we have to take hold of that reality by faith and remind ourselves of it when we see all of the American institutions that we hold so dear fall to the ground. Our kingdom is not of this world. We are citizens of a heavenly society. And no socialist, left-winged, right-winged president can take that away from us. So then, we must have a disposition of sub- submission to all of our ruling authorities, whether that be to the federal, state, or local governments. And this is primarily shown by that second virtue listed in verse 1, that we are to be obedient it doesn't matter whether we agree with all the meticulous laws and regulations we have placed on us. We must obey them. It's plain and simple. Be obedient. But then we ask, why should we pay our taxes when we know that a lot of the money will go to fund abortions or Planned Parenthood? Why should I obey all of these rules and regulations when really nobody follows them? There's a double standard between politicians and normal citizens. Why should I follow them? We may have all kinds of reasons in our own mind trying to justify our disobedience to, to the civil authorities, but there's actually only one that's given in Scripture. And it's a rare exception to the rule. When obedience to man is disobedience to God. That's the only place where we can actually disobey in good conscience. But again, this is a rare exception. And we shouldn't think that just because we live in a pagan society that endorses abortion up until birth in many states, that we are free to become our own authorities. Though the early church faced many persecutions, even being imprisoned for the proclamation of the gospel, they certainly were not political revolutionaries. That's not how the early church thrived. They were not political revolutionaries. They accepted their punishment when the state came and and told them they could not worship Jesus Christ. They accepted it, even with joy at times, even when it sometimes caused their own death. And so Peter says in 1 Peter 2.19, For it is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. But what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You know, it's a truly powerful testimony of Jesus Christ to an unruly and pagan society when law-abiding citizens who are above reproach in every way are imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. This is the only exception to disobedience to civil rulers and authorities. But again, what testimony is it if we embrace the rebellious attitude of our culture and disobey? 
and get imprisoned for it. That's Peter's argument in 1 Peter 2.19. So we need to be obedient. But we're also, as you see in the third virtue listed, to be ready for every good work. Here Paul knows that there's a very real temptation to withdraw and become indifferent to our culture. We can see the wickedness, the craziness of our society and just say, we don't want anything to do with it. We're just going to you know, isolate ourselves. We're going to tuck ourselves away in our own churches and we're not going to interact with the culture. You know, Seeing the craziness of the Cretan culture, it be can become wearisome and Christians could just pull away. But that's not how we are to behave as Christians. We are to be ready for every good work. We must genuinely want the good of our own society. And that's why Christians don't only submit to the government, but we promote its welfare. We seek after its good. We're ready. We're, we're eager to seek the good of our society. And that's why many of the hospitals in our countries have Christian names on it. Because Christians took it upon themselves to promote the good, to be ready for every good work in society. Do you know one of the main reasons that the early church grew at such exponentially high rates? Well, there were two epidemics, one which was likely smallpox in 165 AD, just about 100 years after this letter was written, and the other was measles in 251 AD. And over 30% of the population in ancient Rome and Europe was wiped out each time. And, and many of the pagans that were part of the culture at the time, they just fled to the mountains. They tried to get away. They didn't want to get sick, and so they pulled away. But it was the Christians who stayed with everybody that was getting sick. They stayed with the ill, and they helped care for their own and for their neighbors. Why would they do this? at great cost to their own lives? Why would they stay back and care for the society that persecuted and hated them? It was because they were ready for every good work. And they knew that their eternity was secure in Christ, that neither life nor death could separate them from the love of Christ. And so they were freed up to be ready for every good work in the society. Now, this, of course, is not the primary mission of the church. We're not just called to tend to the poor condition of many you know, that are living around us. That's not the main mission of the church, but it certainly get us, gets us a better hearing for the gospel that we preach. It's an opportunity to stand out in a selfish culture that just cares about themselves. Here we have the opportunity to tell of the redeeming love of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And so we are to be ready for every good work. So that's the third virtue of the new life in Christ. And this actually provides us a bridge into the next four that we'll be studying because um, the next four, more real, uh, they more relate to um, how we are to operate as neighbors, as good neighbors. So the first three more relate to how we are to be submissive to the ruling authorities, to be good citizens. But the next four here that we'll look at actually look, uh, they're far more directed at being good neighbors. And so here are our duties as neighbors in a pagan society. And so the fourth of these virtues is that we are to speak evil of no one. And more literally render, that is to blaspheme no one. There is no place among the redeemed for the slandering, reviling, blaspheming, 
and evil speaking of any person, no matter who they are. I see it far too ha often happen in the political sphere where certain leaders launch insults, use demeaning language, and slander other leaders on the other side of the party. And then it seems as if other leaders are far too ready to label such a leader as a racist or a misogynist. There's just a whole dictionary for slanderous terms to be used. In our society, we thrive off of speaking evil of other people. Now these are how, how unbelievers behave. And we really shouldn't expect anything else from them. But we as Christians far too often engage in evil speaking. Slander and gossip are addictive realities. That's why James calls the tongue the most difficult member to master. We quite readily criticize and condemn people we don't agree with. This is how we often are in the church, and it's a sad reality that we speak evil of people often. But this is not what we have learned from Christ. Our words are supposed to give life, to build up and not to tear down, to give encouragement. Yet as James says, with our words we bless our Lord and Father, and with them we curse them who are made in the likeness and image of God. Our harmful, critical, and slanderous words reveal our hearts, that we are puffed up with pride and have forgotten the grace of the Lord Jesus, which has called us to be salt and light in this world. You see, we don't say things that are not already down deep in our hearts. And so when we speak evil of other people, we are showing our hearts. So we are also, we're commanded to call people to repentance and confront sinners in their sin, but there's a huge difference between calling people you know, to, to repent of sin, to say how they are living in sin, and there's the difference of speaking evil of people. You see, one we do with heavy hearts, the other we do for the sake of pleasure and pride. So we are always to be discerning of secular agendas, and we are to critique them as Christians, and that's okay, but we are not to speak evil of people. We are not to criticize people. So we don't engage in bad-mouthing, name-calling. That's what our society does. That's what a pagan society does. But we don't do that as Christians because we have been redeemed. The fifth virtue, as you see next, is that we are to avoid quarreling. It's similar. We're not to fight. We're to be peaceful and friendly. We don't get caught up in every foolish argument that the culture is having. We don't get angry about what some random person says on Twitter. We don't you know, get all worked up when a politician says something we don't agree with. We're not to be quarrelsome. We don't think it's our place to be involved in every culture war that is going on. I had a friend in high school who was actually really quite quarrelsome. He just loved to argue. That was his favorite thing, and you never knew what he actually believed, but he would bring up any kind of topic and would just love to take some crazy view on it and argue about that. And, you know, me being kind of immature, and I would try to engage him on that and defend the faith, and, you know, it was after a while that I just realized that, like, this is not, you know, this isn't, you know, adorning the gospel of Christ because these are just foolish and silly arguments that I'm just being caught up in. Christians are not to quarrel. The world loves to quarrel. We love to fight. 
And, in, and as Christians, we can easily fall prey to it. In our own churches, we quarrel about preferences for worship styles, programs, politics, and the list goes on and on. But we should be known for our peacefulness and confidence, which keeps us from needing to constantly fight with people. So we are not to quarrel. That's the fifth virtue. Now the sixth virtue that Paul calls us to be as those redeemed in Christ is that we are to be gentle. This term, gentle, which is epikes in the Greek, was used often by jurists who soften the vigor of the law, meaning that they could have thrown the book at people, yet they were gentle with it. They softened the blow. They didn't give the full penalty of the law, so they were gentle. And this is how we are to behave towards outsiders. We aren't to be harsh or overly critical of their falsity, but to be soft and considerate of their plight as lost sinners. All too often I hear excuses that I've made and others make for not being gentle. I'm sure you've heard them. Well, I'm just a straight shooter. I just tell it like it is. Or I'm just being honest. Or the really common one is, I'm just a blunt person, I'm sorry. But we should always be honest, of course, but we should be telling the truth in love. We should be gentle. We shouldn't be blunt people. We should be gentle. We should be considerate. And one of the greatest motivations for being gentle is by gazing at the gentleness of Christ. Isaiah's prophecy of Christ in Isaiah 42, verse 3, says that a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not put out. Notice the imagery. If you think about all of the things that Christ could break, since he is omnipotent, he is powerful, he has all authority, he could wipe out every nation. He could call every single person, you know, to judgment and wipe them out. That's the kind of power that Christ has. He could, you know, cause the universe to cease to exist, yet he's gentle around flickering wicks, around broken reeds that are bruised. He doesn't break them. He doesn't put the flickering wicks out. You see, Christ did not come to condemn the world. But he came to save the world. He sat with those who were broken by their sins, who were outcasts, who were flickering out with despair. He came to the sick, the hurting, and those wounded by sin, and he was gentle to them. He said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus rarely ever described his own moral qualities, but he describes himself as gentle and lowly. And so this is how we are to engage a pagan society, calling for them to come to Christ and find rest for their souls. And this is not done with sour faces or judgmental hearts, but is done with great gentleness and humility as we try to win over souls to the same loving and gentle Christ that saved us. So we are to be gentle. The seventh and final virtue that Paul lists at the end of verse 2 is that we are to, be, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. 
Other translations translate courtesy as humility or meekness. One Greek commentator defines the word as the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of self-importance. It means you don't think of yourself as a big deal. When you engage in society, you don't view yourself as some kind of elitist. So we shouldn't walk around with puffed up chests and pride. But we should walk around with humility. We are to regard ourselves as humble servants. There is no public good that is beneath us. We don't have to assert our rights or fight for them. But we are meek. We are meek. And of course, we are to be humble because that is how our beloved Savior is. Although he was God, he did not cling to his rights and privileges as God, but took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in our own likeness. He humbled himself, even to the point of death on the cross. That's humility. That's meekness. That's what we are to be in this world, to be servants, to consider others as better than ourselves, considering their needs above our own. And notice who we are to show perfect courtesy towards in verse 2. It says that we are to show perfect courtesy towards all people. There are no qualifiers or exceptions for this kind of humility. It doesn't matter their political persuasion. It doesn't matter who they are, what kind of sin that they are enslaved to. It is to be how we treat all people, whether they're in public office or they're right down the street from us. We are to show perfect courtesy. We are to care for others above ourselves, our, our own selves. And so when we treat people in this way, we are adorning the gospel and showing them that Christ can really change souls, that Christ can take proud, arrogant, selfish people and make them humble, can make them servants. And so it tells what kind of powerful gospel that we have. And so here are those seven virtues that we are to be as Christians living in a pagan society. We are to be submissive to rulers and authorities. We are to be obedient. We are to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. But Paul does not leave it at that. He actually grounds these seven virtues in the seven vices of our former life in sin. Notice how he starts in verse 3. For we ourselves were once. So we are to live out these characteristics of a godly life in society because we ourselves once were just like everybody else. Entrapped by sin. Totally depraved. We had nothing good about us. We didn't seek after God. We once were entrapped by these seven vices that he's about to explain. And so why does he do this? Why ground our present life of what we are supposed to be as Christians in this society, in a pagan society, in our former life? Shouldn't he just press forward, move on? Why go back to the past? Well, I think he does this for a couple reasons. First, by grounding these virtues of the new life in Christ and the vices of the old life in sin, we are hastened to forsake the old life 
and put on the new. He tells us where we've come from and that we are no longer to be identified by these vices. We are no longer slaves to sins, but slaves to righteousness. We have put off the old self in order that we may put on the new life in Christ. Be who you are, Paul says, not what you once were. Don't go back to the old life of sin in which you, in which you once formerly walked. You've been redeemed from the tyranny of sin and freed to serve the gentle and merciful Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you need to hear that today as our society tempts and draws you to be exactly like them. There's always that temptation to go back, to leave the Lord. And so we must see these vices and put them off, put them behind us, and to live into our new lives in Christ. And so, as the the author of Hebrews says, let us lay aside every weight and sin that so easily besets us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so this list of former vices stirs up our hearts to press forward and to never go back. But the second reason that he includes this vice list is to humble us and draw our attention to the saving mercy of Jesus Christ. We'll see that in the later verses. Jared will be preaching that. But if we are going to engage in a pagan society, we need to be reminded, we need to be reminded that we were just like them. And the only thing that distinguishes us from them is the goodness and saving mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. The great reformer John Calvin once said, Nothing is better adapted to subdue our pride and at the same time moderate our severity than when it is shown that everything that we turn against in others may fall back on our own head. So we don't want to look at the culture and say, Oh, how wicked they are, how evil they are, when we too once walked in that manner. We too once were in need of redemption. The worst thing that we can do in living in a pagan society is to become like the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, you know, who's forgiven this great, this large, this huge debt that he could not repay. And then after he's forgiven, he runs out to one of his fellow servants who, you know, owed him only a few bucks and he, you know, strangled him because he, he needed to pay that. And then, of course, at the end of the story, that servant is cast into judgment. We don't want to look at the culture and and forget that we've been forgiven of all these sins and that we strangle these people because they are not acting like Christians. We shouldn't have judgmental hearts. We shouldn't look at them as just merely outsiders who are entirely different. We, too, were once like them. So then we must be reminded of these seven vices Though it's not fun, it's not a, you know, a joyful activity to reflect on the depravity of the human soul that characterizes every one of us. It's not fun to do that, but we need it so that we can press on in the faith and be humble. So Paul begins by stating, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. These three vices were common to all of our lives before we were saved by Christ. Our intellect was clouded by sin. And so we called wisdom foolishness and foolishness wisdom. 
Paul says in the letter, of Rome, letter to Romans, For although we knew God, we did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but becoming futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. We had foolish hearts. It didn't matter how much information about God that we had, that we received, we exchanged it for lies. Of course, there are always more overt and subtle ways of doing this. You know, the atheist... The fool says in their own heart that there is no God, you know, and there's so many atheists that are propped up in our society that they're supposed to be the intellectuals, the elites, that they know everything, they know every argument, and they're truly the smart ones, but God calls that foolishness, you know, and then there's also the people that grow up in church, hear the word of God preached every week, and yet are foolish because they never give consideration to the supremacy of God over their own lives. They just sit in the pew and, and listen and, and just avoid the truth. They just exchange it to whatever pleasure or passion they're enslaved to. So there are more subtle and overt ways of becoming fools in our minds, of sin clouding our intellect. But sin doesn't only cloud the intellect, doesn't only cloud the mind, it clouds the will as well. Look at the second vice that Paul lists. Paul says that we were disobedient. Disobedient. The exact opposite of the second virtue in the first list. Remember he says that we are to be obedient? Well, here he says that we weren't like that. We were actually disobedient. This disobedience manifested itself in disobedience to the moral law of God. We didn't care what God said. And if we knew what he said... We just did whatever we thought was right in our own eyes. We were our own authority. That's what sin does. It makes self God. And so we ignore the moral law of God. You know, there's that evangelist, Ray Comfort, who goes around and he uh, always starts out, you know, in these evangelism conversations asking them, have you ever lied? You know, and then he says, have you ever lusted? Have you ever, and he just kind of goes through the Ten Commandments and people, you know, they kind of try to work their way out of it, try to defend their moral status. But, you know, towards the end, they all admit that, yeah, I, I have lied. Yeah, I have lusted after somebody else. And then at the end, Paul, or Ray Comfort goes and says, well, you are a liar. You're an adulterer. And he just lists on all of the vices that describe them, all the ways that they've broken the moral law of God. It's unavoidable. We constantly broke the law of God. But not only that, we were disobedient to our parents. I mean, you parents know this. Your kids, they don't like what you tell them to do. They don't want to do it. From the earliest age, they're brought forth in iniquity. They are disobedient. You know, even sweet little kids that, you know, are running around this church. This describes them. They were disobedient. We were disobedient to the moral law of God. We were disobedient to our parents. And of course, we were disobedient to the ruling authorities. That was the culture in Crete. They were disobedient to the government. You see, we have a natural aversion to God-given authority. Wherever God gives authority, whether that be in the home, whether that be in the church, whether that be his moral law or in the governing authorities, we have a natural aversion against it. We want to break the rules. It's because we're disobedient. Our hearts 
are rebellious. Then thirdly, the third vice that he lists out and might be even the most tragic one out of all of them. He says that we were led astray. Sin pollutes the mind and will of a person, but it also deceives them. This word is used in the New Testament to describe wayward sheep who have gone off course from the fold or out of the shepherd's loving care and kindness and have entered into dangerous territories where wolves can attack them. You see, we were led astray. You know, and the, the state of sin really becomes tragic when you consider where man has fallen from. It was in the garden that God created Adam and Eve in his own image, giving them a garden full of pleasures and delights, having full communion with them, that they were given dominion and authority over all creation. And yet Adam forfeited that. He was led astray into believing this lie that somehow if he ate of the forbidden fruit that he would become like God. And so Satan led him astray. And, and, and ever since, humanity has been wandering aimlessly. We've been wandering without direction, not knowing that where our lives are going is straight to the pits of hell to the wrath of God. We didn't know that all of our sins, all of our rebellion was just storing up wrath for us on the day of judgment. It's what wandering aimlessly, being led astray means. And this was the state of all of our souls, that we were like sheep. Every one of us has turned to our own ways. We have been led astray, not knowing that where we are going is straight to the pits of hell. And that's where we were. That's where many people live in today. That They don't know the gospel and the saving mercy of Jesus Christ. They're led astray. And so they must be reached with the gospel. And then, just when you think that Paul's outlook on the state of sin can't get any worse, he says that we were actually led by hedonism. That we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. Paul says quite clearly that sinful man is in a state of bondage. That slavery describes it best. You know, sinful man thinks that by disobeying God's rules, by running around doing whatever we want, we think that's true freedom. Paul, the Word of God, says that that is slavery. That is bondage. Paul doesn't even get specific about what kinds of passions and pleasures that are in his mind, but that they were various. He just uses the words various. Any and every passion and pleasure, we were enslaved to it. For some, that means sexual pleasure. We see that, obviously, in our culture. culture, That so much of our culture is built on this slavery to sexual pleasure. For some, it was alcohol that you were addicted to, this, to what you thought could actually bring you joy and, and rest from the hardness of life. And alcohol is a very addictive reality. And then others, it was just the lust and the thirst for power. Many are enslaved by this desire for control. And Paul calls it slavery. The state of sin is a state 
of bondage. That's where we were. That's all of us. We were enslaved to sins. Then in the next clause, Paul groups together two more vices. He says that we were passing our days in envy and malice. What a sad description of our plight in sin. That the way we passed our time, the way we just you know, casually went about our days was living in envy and malice. We envied other people and we treated them maliciously. Envy is that deadly sin that ignores all that God has given and blessed you with. And then you covet what somebody else has. It's that state of ongoing dissatisfaction because we're slaves to pleasures and we just want you know, that next best thing. We want that thing that we think will satisfy us. And we see other people on TV that have all the money. You know, they have all the nice house. And we look at them and we envy them. And that's a slavery to sin. That's, that's how Paul describes, that's how we passed our days. That was, that was how we casually related to one another. We envied other people because we thought what they had could satisfy us. And then that invariably leads to malice as we begin to despise that person for what they have and wish ill upon them because we don't have it. The fallenness of man means that we were once created to live in peace and harmony with everyone. Though we were created to live in that way, sin causes us to be absorbed with our own desires and our own passions. And so we despise anyone who really gets in the way of that. And so we went about our days in envy and malice. And this final vice at the end of the verse Three concludes the progression of sin. It's a natural end point. We were hated by others and hated one another. The description of human society, humanity living in rebellion to God is in a state of constant warring with each other, that we hate other people, and other people hate us, nation against nation, race versus race, tribe versus tribe. History bears this out. We're in a constant state of conflict with one another because we're full of hatred of God and full of hatred for our neighbor. We were so consumed with our own passions and pleasures that it caused us to isolate from other people and view them as obstacles and enemies to our own peace and pleasure. You think about the horrific events that happened yesterday and many people ask the question, How could anybody do something like this? It's so wicked and evil, and it truly is. But Paul explains it simply. It's that in the state of sin, we hate each other. That's what describes our relationship with other people. Their culture always talks about loving one another, you know, all this fake idea of love. But in reality, God calls that hatred. We hated one another, and we were hated by other people. So all of the fundamental problems we can see in our own society, in pagan society, it can all be drawn back to this principle in which we once were enslaved to, which is sin. Sin is the greatest problem of our society, of any society, of this world that has not yet been redeemed by Christ. 
So I hope you can see the bleak picture that Paul has painted for us with these seven vices of our former life in sin. This is Paul's way of reveling in the gospel in the coming verses through, th- through seven. This is how he does it. He needs to show us our depraved state before he can revel for us in the gospel. And so we need to remember also that our depraved state before Christ saved us. We need to remember that. Because that's the only way we can engage this world with humility. That's the only way we can actually understand what are the problems plaguing our society. And we have to know this, that it is only the sovereign grace of God that can truly change a soul. And just look at those characteristics of every single one under sin. Every single person under sin. I mean, we're enslaved. We're foolish. We're disobedient. I mean, if God, you know, if it wasn't for His grace, that's how we would all live here in this church. It's only the sovereign grace of God that can actually change hearts. No amount of education can make a foolish person wise. No amount of whatever perfect legislation you have in your own mind can make the disobedient obedient. No matter how hard we fight for traditional values, we cannot turn a slave to various passions and pleasures into a free person. And certainly no pursuit of world peace is going to stop people from hating each other. That's the plight of sin. That's what we all once lived in. And so it becomes clear to us that it's only the gospel that can break in and change people's lives. It's only the pure, simple, and clear proclamation that when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Jesus Christ our Savior. This is the only way dead people can become alive. Only by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Spirit that we are made, to al- be made alive with Christ. And so we return to that question that I asked earlier. How are we to live in a pagan society? Well, it's to, of course, embrace those seven virtues that Paul has instructed us to be in our new lives in Christ. But it's also to understand the plight of sin, to understand our former lives so that we know what we're dealing with in the culture and to be reminded that it's no social agenda that's going to change people or grow the church. It's going to be the clear, the profound, the simple teaching of the gospel that saves sinners, that saved every one of us. And so we need to devote ourselves to that gospel witness, and then to adorn our lives with virtues of gentleness, of compassion, of, of obedience, of perfect courtesy towards all people. We're to have all of these virtues so that we get a better hearing for that gospel that can really change the hearts of people. And so church, we are no, not going to bandage up the culture and make it a better place. Our goal is to preach the gospel in every nation 
and to live in a manner that accords with that gospel. And so this is our task. This is our mission as we live in a pagan society that becomes more hostile to Christianity every day. So we must press on and embrace our mission. Let us pray. Our Father, we know the calling that we are to have in this world in America, which we are so saddened and grieved by the way that it is going as it's rebelling against you. But we are reminded that it is Jesus Christ who came into this world to save sinners like us. So give us humility. Give us passion for the lost that we may preach the gospel to every nation. We may be faithful witnesses in our own congregations, in our own towns and cities, in our own neighborhoods. Lord, that you would be glorified and honored. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.